Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Thank you for joining us this episode of the Meet Your Herdmate Sodcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Professor David Franzen, the Extension Soil Specialist, Soil Science Department, North Dakota State University. Dr. Franzen, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. So this is going to be a little different for you and for the, most of the audience, but I think it's a fascinating story of at least a substantial portion of what I hope we talk about, which is the I, f I ran into you because of a talk that I saw on YouTube that you would, and you've given it several times about the history of export of phosphorus or phosphate from North Dakota. Yeah, that's not really fascinating to other people, but it is to me and it's my program. So, um, so what in, in a nutshell, what does that story look like and what's the practical kind of implication from earliest settlement to today in terms of soil fertility? So, so North Dakota is, is, is definitely a prairie state. It's a, in the northern Great Plains. And uh, except for around the rivers, there are no trees, there are no forests, you know, to speak of or at all in the state. So all prairie and all bison grazed for probably 15,000 years at least. And so an amazing uh, topsoil depth was, was formed during that period of time maybe a foot and a half or so in the western part of the state, which is historically dry, and three feet or more in the eastern part of the state, and, and very black. We're talking six and a half to seven and a half percent organic matter in those feet of, of topsoil, just extremely rich. Uh, we yields in some of the areas that receive water equivalent to what we'd get today with, with no, no fertilizer, with... Um, nasty planting equipment, uh, seed that's maybe marginally adapted that they brought over from Ukraine. And, you know, so just remarkable. So it was it was an amazing and still is an amazing agricultural state, but I, I wish we still had that topsoil. So the, so the whole emphasis, the whole purpose of the talk is to try to awaken people up uh, to what they what they've lost, what they still have, and what they need to do in order to uh, turn back the clock, rebuild it over the years. So, what what was the period of? Is it nineteen hundred end of eighteen hundred or is it mid eighteen hundreds that we had significant European settlement in North Dakota? So the eastern part of the state uh, started to be populated um, in the maybe the early 1870s or so. Uh, there, there were Europeans here periodically for uh, since maybe parts of the 1700. And of course, Lewis and Clark overwintered in North Dakota in the area of Mandan, Washburn, that area, um, in uh, that that uh, early 1800s, and so. Uh, but the but the real settlement of the prairies didn't happen until about 1880, uh, 
And so from about 1880 to the end of World War One, that's when the plows came in and the, and the state was fully cultivated as much as possible. Okay. So we have early settlers coming in. They homesteaded. Is that accurate that there was a yeah, land yeah. claim? You bet. Um, mostly, mostly driven by the railroads. They would, they would advertise in Europe and show pictures of pumpkins the size of people and uh, all all kinds of vegetables that some of them we grow here and some of them we don't. But anyway, they weren't uh, advertising then is about the same as it is now. Uh, whatever <laughs> it takes. So, so the railroads advertise. They've got people over here and the and the people that were settling and pay their homestead. That he uh, helped the help the railroads re, repay their debt, mm. and I guess there were stops along the railroad that were basically limited by the need to replenish water or fuel in the in the in the locomotives, and so that's where they needed a settlement. So, yeah, and, and you know the, the the railroads were given land north and south of where the railroad railroad was going to be. By the government, and then the railroad could sell it off to the settlers, and so they they used that. And then later on, the Homestead Act and uh, just uh, improving the land. Improving the land meant mm -hmm. that you did something with it, which meant yeah. that you plowed it. Which is, you know, I suppose they would have to do that because they didn't have any other tools. But uh, it's not really improving the land. The Indians used to call it. Um, uh, roots wrong side up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the grass is wrong side up. Yeah. Um, so part of one of the challenges, and it may have been further east, we didn't. They did not even have the right plow to deal with the sod that they were trying to break. And in in fact, in I guess parts of the world that you grew up in, they built homes out of the sod. Did they do that in North Dakota as well? Yeah, the sod was sod was very thick, and so the very first first homes that were that were made on the prairie were uh, all sod homes. The only only people that that would build a home like we would consider a home would be people that were pretty wealthy. There were a few of them uh, that would come in and and just had the money to do it. But most of the people didn't. Most of the people didn't have the money to do it. Um, some of the some of the first real houses they built were were built. Um, Using the money they they got selling the buffalo bones they picked up off the prairie, exactly. So, I've I've heard descriptions uh, of that first when they got the more improved plows for cutting through the sod. The sounded like cloth ripping as they pulled through this mass of roots and and plant material and. But then they had that process takes a while before you end up with something, a crop that you can then sell for money. And so one of the things from your and you just mentioned it, that collection of bones and taking them to a railhead was a source of income for many of the settlers. It it was it um, the. North Dakota wasn't the first place to go into this kind of business. It started in the east, and as the buffalo died out there, then went west. The southern, the southern herd, the remains of the southern herd in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, those were uh, several years 
uh, before the North Dakota time, and uh, there were there were millions of pounds of bones that were shipped off on those railroads to the to the east. Usually, uh, some of it was fertilizer, some of it was for industrial uses. There's a picture I have in that video from what a, a carbon block company in Detroit using it for chemicals of some kind. I have no idea no idea why, but huge pile of bones. Mm. But they would get up to twenty dollars a, a ton for it, and and back then that was huge money. I mean, it was uh, a lot of people that moved out here didn't have really uh, hardly any money, and and uh, like you said, it takes a while to plow up uh, forty acres when when you have sod that thick. By the time the people came out here, John John Deere had had made the steel plow, and so it wasn't near the problem of was maybe when they were plowing Ohio in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But so they certainly had that technology to do it. In fact, in the early 1900s, there were steam tractors that people would use, especially the Bonanza farms in the valley, uh, which is another thing that the railroads use. They established these Bonanza farms that were thousands of acres apiece, and they would have pictures of maybe 20, 30 reapers in the field, 20, 30 plows in the field all at the same time. Uh, with pretty spectacular thing. There's uh, families that are here uh, that um, and former governors that um, managed Bonanza Farms a hundred and some years ago. So what Bonanza Farms, uh, what's that name? Is there a story behind that? Yeah, the railroad is just, uh, you know, another marketing thing uh, that um, – the, there was these farms and there are thousands of acres in 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 blocks that um, that the railroads the railroads had and they were managed by somebody and then they would hire people they would have a whole line of equipment a whole line of reapers a whole line of of, uh, of plows and discs and cedars and everything that they needed uh, but uh, they were huge operations, some of them pretty close to what normal people would farm today. But by then, it was just astounding. Most farmers were thought that 160 acres was a huge, you know, huge thing to farm. And, and these were like 100, 160 acres, just huge things. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it just caught people's imagination and, and made people want to move out here and farm that land, too, because the yields they were getting with this newly plowed soil were astounding, you know, way higher than they were in the East. So, so the railroads were maintaining ownership of that land. And yeah, hiring initially. People. Yep, yeah. Initially. And then, uh, and then as time went on that they, they, they broke them up and some of the people that managed them uh, managed to keep quite a, quite a, a large block of, of that land as well. So a lot of the, well, how many acres is in a section? So a section is 640 acres and a homestead would be 160 acres. So it'd be a quarter of that. And so, you know, farmers here, our farms are very huge compared to some parts of the, of the world, uh, thousands of acres. And so people talk about farming 10 quarters or 40 quarters or that kind of thing. Each quarter is 160 acres of land. Hmm. What what is the nutrient composition? So that that bone loss represents a transfer of nutrients out of that zone ecosystem. 
somewhere else. And bone is going to be made of calcium and phosphorus, a little bit of protein if it's real fresh, so nitrogen, but most of this wasn't real fresh that they were picking up. Yeah, you were exporting mostly phosphate when it's when it's going east. And so I figured that with all the bones that were shipped out of here, although the records have burned up um, 100 years ago when one of the one of the railroad stations burned up in Minneapolis or someplace close to that, uh, Northern Pacific. Uh, so the records were lost, but just given the amount of bones that are recorded on the southern herd, the northern herd was at least that much. And so I figured that we, we sent out enough phosphate to fertilize our farms for a couple of years anyway, with the, with the, with the phosphate that was shipped out of here. So that was, a, it was kind of interesting. It's not a huge amount of thing, but what the, what the Buffalo bones did in my talk, you alluded to my talk a little bit before, but I, I, I wanted to catch people's attention. And so I started talking about the Buffalo bones because it's something that, that, Certainly the younger younger farmers may have never heard of, and the older farmers, they kind of remember their fathers or grand, grandparents talking about, but didn't really grasp really what it was like because they, they were born after that. Uh, so I wanted to give them a flavor of that. And then once I told them that, uh, yeah, that once we shipped the phosphate off the bones, that, um, that the biggest phosphate export was yet to come. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In the, in the in the form of, of soil blowing away with wind erosion. Yeah. So I shared with you my experience, my education on my last visit to North Dakota, that there's a term that I learned. Um, and, and again, one of the things from your presentation, and I don't know why I made this assumption, but I always thought of Dust Bowl as being you know, southeastern Colorado and, and that portion of the country. And surely it was bad there. And your presentation made me aware of it was very bad in North Dakota as well. It was. I, I don't think we had the photographers up here that they did down south, maybe because we, there were more urban areas and the in the Southern Plains, perhaps, because they were developed a little bit sooner than what we were up here. Um, or maybe it's just because it was so dang depressing, nobody wanted to take a picture of it. Really, some of the really good pictures we have is around 1934-ish, uh, when the USDA had sent um, sent a photographer up um, into, into North Dakota and South Dakota. And, and there are some pictures from Williston and some around Bismarck. and from that but um it's remarkable how many how, how few pictures really really exist of north dakota uh northern south dakota i have one myself but um that i bought in some weird way but but there are more um more of the big staggering pictures of the dust storms coming in from south dakota than they are in north dakota but they certainly happened in north dakota because the old you know the farmers that are well, in their late 80s, early 90s or so, they they remember them. So the, the mindset of farming, I remember people saying that the Plains was at least at one point described as the great American desert because there were no trees. And yet 
it's this fantastically productive eco zone just doesn't have trees but the people coming to it were used to seeing trees and so they brought their knowledge and technology with them and tried to use it in this new zone this problem of wind erosion didn't take from the 1880s until 1930 to show up it started right away it it did it, it it's important it's important to realize that that um looking looking back it's easy to see all the soil that everyone lost and and think that these people were stupid what in the world were they doing but they were really only doing what they were taught what they knew uh, they came from pretty sheltered areas a lot of people in this area came from northern europe uh, scandinavia norway a lot of them uh, germans uh, germans from ukraine uh, a little bit later on uh, and a lot of them from the from the eastern part of the of the, of the United States, and and so the way you prepared land uh, to to seed was to first plow it, and then you disc 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 it, and you have to place the soil in the consistency of flour almost because the cedars that were used to seed the wheat crop, which is wheat's a big deal here, it still is, uh, weren't, weren't heavy. They didn't have a lot of steel on them. Um, they couldn't really exert a lot of pressure onto the soil. And they were, they were either pulled by horses, a lot of them, uh, and then later the seam tractors, but, but horses almost you know, they were really small tractors. So, so it had to be beaten up like that. And where these people came from, that wasn't a problem because a stiff wind is what, 10 mile an hour? And that hardly moves any soil at all. But when people moved out here, they would write back to family back wherever it was and, and almost to a letter, they would comment how how the wind blows all the time and 20, 30, 40 mile an hour, 50s, you know, it, it's not uncommon to have gusts 60, 70 mile an hour sometimes in the springtime during planting season is one of those times when the soil is the most bare and you get the highest winds. So there's, there is a, um, for, for example, in a, I, I came across online a brochure from a from a red clover seed selling company about 30 miles north of Fargo and they they grew red clover on about oh 1500 acres of land uh, which is incredible really but uh, they would talk about once the land was plowed and, and ready for seed uh, the wind would blow and and the ditches would just uh, immediately be filled with with black and, and and that's all they did was they just kind of remarked on it because I, I think they thought that that land would last forever because it's so black, so deep. But, you know, this is 20 years before the 1930s. And then in the 19, around 1929 here in North Dakota, a little bit, little bit earlier than what it was in Texas, it really started to dry out. Uh, and then people prepared the land just like they usually do. The crop failed. The land had all year to blow. 
And of course, it didn't blow every day. But I had one old farmer, uh, when I got to a point in the in a presentation, he just stood up in the back of the room and he just started talking about his experiences northwest of Grand Forks as a kid, that that these things, these these winds would come up just out of nowhere. And uh, they would huddle in their house. They'd, they'd push newspapers, cloth, whatever they could into every cranny they could. And, and still, they couldn't hardly see across the room as it was just so black even inside the house. And then it would maybe last for a couple days. And the first thing they'd do when they, and when they went out was try to find the animals because the wind had drifted over the fences and they'd climb over the fences. And, you know, some of them died from dust ammonia. And the government had a program where they'd pay 10 bucks for a, a horse or a cow or something like that. And you'd bring them in and, and the government would shoot them because they really weren't worth anything. Um, but if you kept them, they were just going to die. The lungs are just filled up with, with dirt. And people too. I mean, we've, yeah, there was a lot of um, a lot of dust pneumonia, and a huge number of people um, went away from the state. You know, you, mm -hmm. the stories of the Okies are legendary, and books written about them and everything. But we have the same thing here. Uh, we have an area southwest of Fargo that's called the Cheyenne National Grasslands. Now, uh, it's several thousand acres, and uh, it's just uh, you can tell they're dunes. There are dunes out there, and and I know somebody that grew up in a town that just bordered it on the west side, and he said that when he was a kid, his dad would take him around the grasslands and say, you know, Johnson's farmed over here, Olson's farmed over here, somebody else farmed over here. Every quarter section in that national grasslands before the 30s was farmed, and farmed very successfully. But as soon as the, as soon as those winds hit, uh, stripped it all away, and um, and nothing was there except uh, sand that wasn't good for anything, but but hopefully some grass to take on and and throw some cows out there. Hmm. And that fine material that left represented a significant, as you said, it was more than this shipment of bones represented a nutrient loss to the region. Oh yeah, um, I figure that from the from the time that the plows hit until today, we've lost the equivalent of about um, two hundred years of phosphate application at today's present rates. Um, a um, an acre of of topsoil six inches thick contains around a ton of ton of phosphate, P two O five we call it. Um, and most of our state lost anywhere from a foot to two feet of soil during that period of time, during this hundred and what's it been, hundred and thirty year period, something like that. It's huge, huge, huge amounts of for a hundred times more than we shipped out of here with the buffalo bones. And I think it was you, and I think it was. It may not have been in your presentation, but. Uh, the comment about going back to locations that were used for soil mapping? Yeah, my my colleague, David Hopkins, he's a soil scientist and a really good pedologist, a uh, person that characterizes soils. And, and he used to do it in conjunction with the National Resource Conservation Service, uh, the NRCS. You know, they're, they're the ones that officially do it. 
but there was a period of time uh, about um, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, where they were uh, about the time that they dammed up the Missouri and and made Lake Sakakawea here in the in the in the state, and there was some I idea that they would they would irrigate uh, land in the state with that with that water. And, and that's, you know, politically it's dead right now, but at the time it spurred a lot of soil survey work. Anyway, so so Dave Hopkins is a really good soil survey person. And so he he went out to, to places that had been mapped by the NRCS uh, in the 1960s. Uh, and so when when they mapped it, they characterized, they call it characterized. So you, so you get, you know, this is this depth of topsoil, you know, it goes down six inches, it changes color, changes something else. So the soil is laid out in what pedologists term horizons, because when you characterize a soil, you're in a pit, you're in a hole. And so the, the soil changes on these horizontal levels. And so, you know, the kind of like the horizon. So you got this horizon, that horizon. So you get these these layering effects. So he went out um, and and went to uh, several of these sites to see what's happened in the last 50 years. And uh, all of the sites, except the one that was in permanent pasture, had uh, lost topsoil during during that 50 years, every one. The one that was the worst was West of Grand Forks. And, and when it was first characterized, the, the depth from the surface of the soil to, to the subsoil, where subsoil is where the plants and the chemistry haven't really changed anything from when, when that, that sediment was first laid down. But, but they found that between that time that they had lost uh, 14 inches of topsoil, and the, and the farmer that was farming the land had no idea that they'd lost any at all. Hmm. And I, I characterize it. I think, I think what happens with farmers, and unless they're really shown, is that um, when they look back at the, when they look in the back window of the tractor as they're leaving the field, it still looks as black to them as it did the year before, but it's not but it still looks black to them because they don't have a reference. They don't know what it used to look like. Right. But we have soil surveys back into the early 1900s uh, in the state. Not every county has a soil survey that goes back that, that far, but several do. And, and, and it talks about, it, it mentions, it categorizes what the soils look like back then. And, and it, it looks like a dream compared to what we have right now because they're, they're talking about uh, soils that have two feet thick with six and a half percent organic matter. And you go off of those soils today and there's maybe six inches of two and a half percent. You know, top mm. soil is all gone. All you're, all you're doing is the, you really, you really farm on the subsoil of 1900. Um, I'm, I'm speaking with David Franson, uh, Dr. Franson's professor, extension soil specialist, soil science department, North Dakota State University. Um, I, I remember someone saying that that top horizon in some of these worst cases is essentially gone. And it's like this new sort of mixture horizon of the A and the B. The tillage equipment reaches down. So it still looks 
a little dark. It's it, um, and again, people have to be shown. It's it's not that people are wantonly destroying things. It's not that these people are stupid. It's we haven't realized the the issues. Um, one last, well, um, I think you or someone there in Bismarck taught me about the little rocks on pillars in the fields. Oh, yeah, they're, um, uh, you see them mostly out west because in the east, a lot of those have been mined to use in the, during the flood years. But it, it's, it's really common to see the rock piles sitting on little pillars where the soil around them is washed or blown away and, and the rocks were placed there 80 years ago uh, on the original soil. And, and, and they're just, they're, they're standing up there on a pillar. Back in New England, you build a, a wall with your, but these fields are a little bigger than what they had in New England. And so they had to get them somewhere and they just put them in, piles and then farmed around them and now we have this this difference in height oh yeah um, and and one last observation from that trip and that was a new term i had learned so hopefully we're not talking about things as bad as they were in the 30s although that's a pretty low bar to get over i mean that was horrendous but we're still seeing wind erosion and in some cases water erosion as well in these tillage cropping systems well we do i i i had occasion last year to sit next to a a long-term no-tiller from the southwest part part of the state and and i always thought that their incentive to go no-till out there was the wind and i think mostly it is but he shocked me when he said that that they weren't the first in their neighborhood to go no-till but but they they were just about ready to plant, and they had this thunderstorm came in, dump about five six inches of water on, and they had these huge gullies that were like eight feet deep or something like that. And he said that was the day that they all decided they were going to go no till. Mm -hmm. So the the water can be a problem uh, because we get most of our rain in those thunderstorm events. Uh, but the wind is our perennial killer. We had. Big dust storms this year in the eastern part of the state. Um, I I heard from a from a soil conservation person uh, about uh, 80 miles southwest of Fargo, and the field west of the uh, the um, this rest area along the highway had blown, and the county had to come in and they took out 25 truckloads of dirt from the from the rest area to get it operational again in one 24-hour storm. Wow! And um, so you know, it's still it's still happening in in places in the in the valley that it's still largely conventional till. And uh, when the wind blows like it has this spring, uh, a lot of soil moves. And so the 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 phosphorus is. I understand there's a little bit of controversy, but it's essentially a limited resource. There's there's some finite point where we run out. Yeah, the um, one of the problems with phosphate in the United States is that is that it's concentrated in the areas where the animals are in the east, and the and the phosphate is depleted from the feed grain area in the in the central part of the state. 
So, you know, having to get moved around, I mean, there's, there's enough around to, there's enough around to go on, but, uh, but the resources in the United States, for example, are limited by where they are in Florida. They're, they're where the people want to retire. And so there's, there's huge limitations on how much can be mined. And there's a question about, you know, whether it should be mined. There's a lot of environmental um, push and shove and, you know, the private land, public land, that whole battle. And then as it, as, as it, as it has it in the western part of the of the U.S., uh, the phosphate resources are just outside of Yellowstone Park. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know if God has a sense of humor or he's just being nasty with this. But, you know, we have uh, some of our resources in Retirement Central and we have others in the most pristine area in the whole country. So that's weird. Morocco has huge reserve. China has some. Russia has some. There's some around the world. but. Um, it's not cheap, even if you you know don't think about it. It's just not cheap. But to 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 lose it from your your field and not being able to to raise your your field levels up because it blows away every year. That's just not good. One of the interesting things is that usually the first first no tillers on the block, the first no tillers in a region, um, their phosphate levels increase over time because their neighbor's topsoil blows over into them. If you're the last no-tiller on the block, then, you know, you just, just kind of lost it. I, I had a I had a grower this spring tell me that this is after one of the dust storms, and he's been no-till for 40 years, so he doesn't worry about it. But he said his neighbors west of us, uh, the land came up for sale a couple of years ago, and he didn't bid on it. And, you know, some other neighbors were friends. I said, why, why in the world didn't you bid on that land? He says, well, I'm farming his best topsoil. Why would I bid on the rest? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. So then the next step in the chain is even if we didn't have wind erosion or water erosion, we're still harvesting crop and shipping it. And so that represents a nutrient loss in that crop that goes somewhere. And, and so it, sometimes in the forage side of things, we try to talk to people about the, the value of hay based on its nutrient content. Um, it would be interesting if we thought about other commodities in the same way. Maybe that doesn't get us anywhere. But the thing that came up in a previous phone call was if we're feeding monogastrics or similar simple stomach animals like poultry or swine or human beings and we're feeding them grains most of that phosphorus in the grain is phytate which we don't utilize so now that represents no value to us at all and a loss to the agricultural system that produced it and we haven't gotten good at closing that loop yet. Um, but then you mentioned sort of another alternative or, or an answer to that as low phytate feed grains. Yeah, so so there is such a thing. And people have, have known about the phytate problem for, gosh, a couple decades at least. And, and so I know that there's low phytate grain around. Um, I don't know if it's in common use. Maybe maybe its development is is maybe too expensive for a lot of people to use. But I know it's 
it's on the pork producers web uh, radar pretty sure um because one of the you mentioned the ecological problems and it's when phosphorus gets into surface waters that we have problems yeah it's 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 almost it's almost never a groundwater problem but but the eutrophication and the problems with the red algae and the cyanobacteria, all of that um, in that eutrophication zone—that's just a—that's just a big problem. So, trying to keep it out of the water waterway—it's—it's—it's it's, it's tough in this area because a lot of those a lot of those lake beds have some of this dust blown around. I mean, the the, the bottom of the lake isn't isn't 1880 bottom of the lake it's it's 1880 bottom of the lake plus the topsoil that came off of of all kinds of of acres to to the windward side of it so so a lot of the old old topsoil is in the lakes and, and some of this is dredged out from time to time but not a lot it's mostly behind dams where that happens but if you're in a we have a lot of potholes uh, in the state uh, where the glacier dead ice ended, and so we're on the migratory route. Lots and lots of migratory birds, um, all kinds. I, I don't know the names of them all. Some you hunt, and some they're just pretty, uh, but uh, but they're all they're all on that route, and they all use that lake area. But those those lakes, those little ponds. Um, um, I don't know how you would get rid of the phosphate in them because of the topsoil that's in the bottom of them. Hmm. So where did you, you didn't grow up in North Dakota, did you? I didn't. I grew up outside of Chicago. Um, I um, my um, I had an uncle to farm. Of course, we all had an uncle to farm back then in the fifties. <laughs> <clears throat> so that's that's no that's no endorsement, but um, but my. Um, my dad was uh, one generation out from Sweden, and uh, his father was a carpenter, and dad worked for the railroad after World War II, and my other grandfather worked at the steel mill around Chicago, so I kind of came from a steel steel railroad uh, family, and uh, when, I, when I went to University of Illinois, I, I decided I wanted to be a chemist because I wanted to be a chemical oceanographer which is about as far away from central Illinois as you can get. But, but anyway, it, it, it had an appeal. So uh, so anyway, I went into chemistry, and then after I was in it for just a short period of time, I just couldn't imagine myself in a lab coat running around all day in a lab. So uh, I started looking for something else, and I, I took a course that included soil in it. And when I got down to the pit, I saw chemistry and biology and physics and math and everything all in one place, and I thought this is it. And so, so I um, I worked my way my way into it. And when I was a senior, I was a student helper for a professor in soil science at at Illinois, uh, Fred Welch, and uh, so he offered me a master's, and so I got my master's, and then I went to work at a fertilizer retailer as a agronomist and before too long was managing the whole thing and uh, retained the agronomy and and became a certified crop advisor when that came up and then it looked like my boss was going to sell i was only 20 mil miles away from champaign and ted peck um, who was a soil scientist at um, university of illinois 
was looking around for somebody to do a PhD in precision ag stuff. And so I made a deal with my boss that I would work 40 hours um, and uh, go to school full time. And, and uh, my wife was very long suffering for four years, but, um, but I did it. And after that, it was very clear he was going to sell the place. So this job came up at North Dakota State and, and I was fortunate enough to get it. Been here ever since. That's a remarkable part of the country, and I look forward to spending more time when things kind of shift back to or forward, whichever way you want to look at it. But I'm wondering, so I graduated mid-80s, joined faculty, Oregon State, left there <laughs> early 90s, came back into agriculture right around 2011. Few things have changed. <laughs> Oh, my yeah. joke, my joke, and it's not a joke, it's serious. Um, <laughs> I was looking at a forage seed catalog and I saw this abbreviation BMR. And I thought that BMR was like a virus. Uh, so, um, and I'll explain that joke to anybody that wants to know, but some things have changed over time. And, and one of the things people may be hearing about, and you've mentioned it, no-telling. And and that's something that requires some new technology and some new knowledge relative to where people were 50 years ago. Um, at least that's the number I'd pick. I may not be exactly right on that. But, that's pretty close. Um, so what sorts of things did... So it, it, it's clear that the less we till the soil, the better. It's It's clear that the more cover we can leave, the better in terms of crop residue, but better would be arguably some living plants. Um, but then you, you've got competition between those living plants and the crop you're trying to grow. So you need to manage that in some way. Um, and, you know, the people that came to settle couldn't just, you know, take a stick and poke a hole in the ground and throw some corn seed in the ground with a fish head. That wasn't going to work. What what sorts of things have you seen shift over, you know, the time since you discovered soil science and today? Yeah, so I um, the whole Champaign area has been farmed since what the eighteen eighties, roughly about the same time as up here, but it. Um, it was the Great Illinois Swamp at one time. If you look back at the old statehood maps, it, it shows an area of the Great Illinois Swamp. And nobody lived there because the mosquitoes were awful, probably malaria. They would they would populate the moraines, the, the ridges, you know, that the, the glaciers left. So Champagne, Urbana's on a moraine. Um, Paxton's on a moraine. You could go on and on. The older older towns are all on a moraine that surrounds the the Great Illinois Swamp. Around the 1880s, uh, some people would call them Germans, I guess, but it you know it was it was Europe was fluctuating about that time. So they were they they knew they were close enough to the Netherlands to know how to drain the land, and and so that's exactly what they did. So they uh, that land was almost free, not quite free, but dang near close to free, like 50 cents an acre, something like that. So they they uh, sent word back to um, 
their European relatives and told them to come on over and bring the kids. And they bought these um, these steam shovels that they put on barges and they floated them out to the middle of these shallow lakes. And they started digging to the nearest stream. They're luckier than we are here. There are a lot more streams in Illinois than there are up here. And, uh, and so they, they made the big ditches to drain them. And then they hired people for like a buck a day to, to dig tile and tile those places. Now I'm pretty sure that land is what, $8,000 an acre, something like that. Hugely productive. So it was all conventional till. Almost all was conventional till when I first started out, and so I that's 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 when I when I knew, and and pretty sure that most of it is still conventional till, although there's a sizable amount of strip till I know, which which is a modified no-till that works with corn. Uh, strip till, I mean, no-till is very hard in corn because it because the soils are cooler and wetter in the springtime and it's always a yield drag. And so the strip till, you make a little strip uh, where you're gonna plant the next year, the, the uh, auto steer, the GPS controlled steering that's within uh, half an inch accuracy uh, makes this all possible. So it wouldn't have been possible 40 years ago. You go blind trying to plant those those little little strips. So. But you could do it now, and so there are some people that are doing that modified no-till in that area. Um, there was some attempts at, at no-till subsidized by herbicide companies in the late 70s, early 80s or so. Uh, some of it grasped on, but not a lot of it. When I moved up to North Dakota, it was um, quite the shift. Um, in the valley itself was, is, um, was uh small conventional till. But once you got toward Bismarck or so, then things changed drastically. And I got to know I got to know the early no-till adopters, uh, mostly out in the southwest part of the state, uh, but really all over. Uh, they had formed a network and formed a, a, a uh, an association called the Manitoba North Dakota Zero-Till Association. And the first no-tillers were a few from Manitoba, um, and then people in the southwest part of the state. There were a group around Beach, North Dakota, which is a, the last town on I-94 before you get to Montana. And they were all young farmers about the same age, and people call them the Beach Boys. And and so, but I don't know if they could sing a lick, but they sure know what, knew what to do with the... They decided that if they weren't going to go no-till, that there wasn't going to be any land to farm by the time their kids were grown. And so they, it wasn't university extension supported at that time. Uh, that there wasn't anybody in the region uh, academic wise to really support them. They just decided they were gonna try to figure out how to do this because they didn't have a choice. And so uh, they started, they found out that they couldn't monoculture anymore. The, the wheat after wheat after wheat was not gonna work. And so they diversified the rotation. Um, they worked out um, things with how long the rotation has to be. And when you go to a short season crop and when you go to a long season crop, they learned that 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 no-till and fallow wasn't going to work, that it had to be that it had to be a continuous crop. So back 40 years ago, half the land, the West River, was all fallow. So only half the land was was farmed uh, every year. The other half was just bare. And so people started uh, what they call chem fallow when glyphosate roundup came in in the 80s. 
but they found out that it just got too wet, and so they really needed to just crop it all the time. So that was another thing that came out of it. And then after they'd been in it four or five years or so, then some uh, select people on extension and some at the USDA Mandan Research Center by Bismarck uh, started to get on board and started doing their own research and working out on their land and, and having a lot of interaction with that that no-till group. So it's just grown. And so now west of the Missouri River, I bet 90, 98% of that land is no-till. It's just continuous no-till. And north of the north of the river and east of the river, there's less of it, but there's still a lot of it uh, in that area. It's just uh, the last holdout in the state really has been the Red River Valley. But um, thanks largely to a colleague of mine, Abby Wick, who's been here about uh, seven, eight years now, uh, that's starting to turn around and more and more people are uh, putting their foot into the no-till water uh, where before people would say it would never work. But now there's neighborhoods everywhere where people have shown that it can work and it's very successful and your dirt doesn't blow and you really can farm and um, you, you save moisture. And But if you use cover crops, you can get rid of excess without having to chisel it. it it's um, quite remarkable to see the to see 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 how how the soil has improved over just the span that I've been here, uh, but it really has taken a, a turn for the better. So you've mentioned a figure of around six percent. So let's just, if that's not specific, let's just use it. What would you think the maximum amount of organic matter a soil in your environment could have? Is that sort of native state at six percent, or was it higher, or I, th I think in the eastern part of the state, the native was somewhere around 8% or so. That's just a guess. Um, we have people in the southeast. I have, I have, I have a, a farmer farmer friend, a colleague. I've worked on his farm. He's been in no-till since um, for over 40 years, 45 years roughly. And he's built his some of his soils to 7.5%. And, and I think that's probably plateaued. But it does remarkable things for him. <clears throat> never has a crop failure, always has water, never has too much water. Uh, his nitrogen rates are 100 pounds less than the neighbors. Organic matter is twice as much as his neighbors. <laughs> his phosphate levels, I, like I said before, are in the high range, uh, and he doesn't fertilize any heavier than any of his neighbors do. Uh, it's just, it's cheaper to farm. You need less equipment, you need less fuel, you need really less of everything. You just have to stay on top of it and manage it and be patient when it's a little bit wetter spring. Mm -hmm. But but once you get the crop on the ground, it's amazing. Uh, there's a, a fairly new no-till grower south of Fargo about 50 miles and he farms are really really I mean the soil around Fargo is almost 50% clay he probably has some that's 55 to 60% so you can just imagine what that's like but in and he was at the point before he went no-till where he was just having to go with a perennial grass because it was it was always too wet. To, if it wasn't too wet to seed, it was too wet to, to combine. It was just, it was awful to work. 
But once you go into the no-till and then use the cover crop all the time because the land is always wet, um, he's out combining and his neighbor that that maybe has better soil um, couldn't possibly combine. It couldn't possibly hold the combine up, but but he just, the, the soil is, has gathered its, it's good aggregation underneath it. It's it's held together. It's not. If you put a pump penetrometer in the ground, you'd think you'd have a little bit of compaction, but it's really not compaction. It's just the soil particles are held together uh, in a much more stable configuration than they are with that randomness that you get when you when you hmm. beat the soil to death all the time. Hmm. Um, I, I was watching another of your presentations and you were again something new to me um i've been out of crops for a while um and and no longer making yield target recommendations for fertility or fertilizer applications and and, and that you had been looking at a lot of data and trying to look at the relationship and so if you could help me understand that just a little bit better, um, because I think there was something really important there. So the, the idea that, that yield and, and nitrogen rate or, or fertilizer rate of any kind is related um, really came out of Oklahoma State. My friend Bill Ron, a professor down there at Oklahoma State, the guy that, that uh, developed the green seeker down there, the active optical sensor. But anyway, just a brilliant guy. And... So he found out when he was messing around with the green seeker that he couldn't get it to to correlate with with the with the yield expectation. It only it only mattered within the field that you were dealing with, not between fields of different yield capacity. So, but and then when when most of the Corn Belt states, I didn't have enough data yet to to throw in with this at the time, but. The Corn Belt states, led by Iowa and Illinois, uh, went together, pooled all of their pooled all of their nitrogen rate data for corn. And if they just threw it all up there, it just looked like some kind of shotgun blast. But when um, when they started not thinking about the the yield potential of each of the each of the plots, the maximum yield of each of the plots, and move to a more of a relative yield, then it then it made perfect sense. And so when I had my data together, what I did was was I would standardize each site. So say if you're working with corn, you have one site where your maximum yield was 200 bushels. Uh, so you divide all your yields by 200, so you get everything between zero and one. Then you had a, a site that, um, maybe more on environmental stress and, and the maximum yield was 120. And you did the same thing with that. So you have values between zero and one. You do that with all your sites, all the hundred and some sites you have. And and what you what you get is is that the the same rate, the same same amount of of known nitrogen that's going to take to get your maximum yield in a good yielding environment is the same that it's going to give you the maximum yield in a low yielding environment. And so that blows people's mind until you start to think about what happens under stressed conditions. So, so let's think about a drought. We're in a drought right now. 
in most of the state. And so in a drought, there's a lot of things that happen. So you, um, you normally get some nitrogen from the soil as the microbes feed on the organic material and the residues and release the nitrogen and the residue. In a drought, that doesn't happen because they're, they're dormant because there's no moisture around to make them work. So that component goes away. Uh, you certainly don't get any losses in that environment. You know, you don't get leaching, you don't get denitrification, gas is lost, no nitrous oxide, no N2 gas going off. That, that doesn't happen, so I guess that's a plus. But the other thing that happens is that the root systems in the drought tend to be smaller. And you, the roots don't really, roots don't grow to water, they grow through water to get to more water. And so if the soil is really dry down a foot, foot and a half, something like that, the soils aren't going to go any deeper than that. And that's usually what happens in our situation of the drought is that the roots just don't have enough moisture down deep in order to sustain their growth to deeper depths. And then the last thing, and maybe the most important thing, is the main way that nitrogen gets to the roots is through a process we call mass flow. The ammonia goes in the soil, it gets converted to nitrate by the nitrogen nitrification bacteria. And then uh, the roots receive the nitrate from the water they're picking up because the nitrate is dissolved in the water, it doesn't stick to the soil at all. And so it's moving toward the root with the transpiration stream. But if the soils are dry, there is no mass to flow. And so the efficiency of any nitrogen that's in the soil, wherever it is, is extremely low compared to what it would be in a normal year. So it takes much more nitrogen or any nutrient really in a drought uh, to make a certain yield or ton, bushels, whatever, than it would in a normal year. Now let's think about the other end of the, the book. Um, well, one more thing. All right, so we've had really wet years too. And, and in a wet year, you have leaching, you have denitrification, you have those huge losses. Uh, you have periods of time when the soil is saturated, and during those saturated times, there is no mineralization release of nitrogen from the soil either. Uh, also, when you have a really wet year, those root systems definitely are very shallow because the roots don't go in the saturated soil. So again, it takes much more nitrogen per bushel per ton per whatever unit of yield to grow a crop than it would in a normal year. Now, 2016 in North Dakota was a perfect year. We had just enough, just enough rain and scattered out throughout. It was a beautiful year. Now we had, I had check plots where we didn't add any nitrogen to a beginning low nitrogen in the soil of plots that we were getting 180 bushel of corn, 70 bushels of wheat with no added nitrogen at all. The mineralization in a year like that is off the charts, just, you know, you, you just don't need that much. The roots can grow to their full potential because there's nothing to keep them away. There's enough moisture to, to stimulate their, their rooting down deeper and there's no water underneath in order to shallow. So it grows to its full genetic potential and there's enough water there to, to feed that mass flow for the entire season. It's a perfect thing and it takes far, far less nitrogen per bushel or ton or yield than it does in a normal year. So those are your streams. A lot more under stress and a lot less on vanilla, and so it doesn't really matter what the yield is. 
about the same amount of fertilizer and amount of nutrients to 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 um, make a make a crop in in a in a good year is a bad year doesn't matter so yield isn't part of the equation so then it's a question of what you get for the crop and what it costs for the fertilizer it's yeah a... so we so we build an economic production function is what it's called and so we take into account the cost of the fertilizer and the price that a farmer um, will get from the crop uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that because because I've been able to I've been able to have enough have enough studies in different places where where I know that for example east of the Missouri River you know it's it's more moist the yields are more higher and and the response curve which means the the rate at which yield increases with with the nitrogen or whatever nutrient I'm looking at uh, is different east of the river and than it is west of the river, and and so I have recommendations for the eastern part of the state and the western part of the state, and I also have different recommendations for a very odd area that's um, it's a kind of a triangle in shape and it goes from Devil's Lake and then moves as a triangle up to Canada, and according to my counterpart in Canada, it also goes into Manitoba. But they don't have enough data yet to really really show that. So, so this area, and I didn't know this going in. I just knew it because the studies that have been done in that area showed that it needed a lot less nitrogen to make a crop up there than it would in the rest or, rest of it. And so I carved it out. Well, it just so happens that area was identified back in the late 50s in a peer-reviewed journal article as the Shaley area in North Dakota, and. What possessed him? I have no idea, but there was a researcher at the USDA Mandan Research Station uh, that took the shale out of soil samples and ran a nitrogen mineralization study on it and found that there is a high amount of mineralizable ammonia within the shale. And so that's that's why that area needs less nitrogen because the soil itself is a slow release fertilizer. Mm. So amazing. So anyway, the, we call I call it the Langdon area, but it's in in, in our maps. And then in in corn, we we grow quite a bit in the eastern part of the state, and there's some very high clay soils, so they're susceptible to denitrification because they're easily saturated. Uh, and so we we handle these differently than we do more medium textured loamy soils, so loam soil. So the response curves are very different when the two of them. So I divided it up. And then the last thing that I that I do on my nitrogen recommendations uh, that nobody else do, does, and I think someday they will, but they haven't yet, is uh, we have uh, lower nitrogen rates for no-till, continuous no-till, long-term no-till, six years or more no-till than conventional till. And I got this idea from those farmers that I was talking about before. So my first, my coldest day in North Dakota was <clears throat> the second day of the, the last day of the, Minnesota, the, the Manitoba, North Dakota zero till conference up at Minot. And I woke up in the morning and it was 45 below, no wind chill factor. I mean, that was just, it was 45 below and I plugged my car in and so it started, and I had to go to a 
a meeting later in the day. But I remember because of that. But then the evening before, I also remember because they, the long-term no-till people had invited me up uh, for a little get-together in the up, uh, one of the upper rooms. And so uh, they they were glad to see me because that position had been open for a couple of years, and they were glad to see somebody in it. And But they also said in the next breath that they didn't pay any attention to North Dakota State U University recommendations anymore. And I asked them why. And they said, well, after they've been in no-till for a period of time, they found that they could shave their nitrogen rates back. And they've shaved them back so much that it didn't resemble our recommendations at all. And so they don't even pay any attention to them. So I said, fine. But then, what, 15 years later? 15 years later, I'd accumulated well over 100 site years of, of wheat data. And I remember the conversation, and I noted which ones were long-term no-till and which ones aren't, and so I divided them. And they were right that it took, took about 50 pounds less than to grow the same same yield crop and really higher protein than conventional till. And so when I did the corn work and the sunflower work, I, I made sure that I had long-term no-till sites and conventional sites in the same neighborhood and the same thing. Same thing on each of those. So there's mm -hmm. there's lower recommendations when you have long-term no-till than conventional till. And what's a pound of nitrogen these days? Around 50 cents a pound of N. Is so, that purchased you know, or applied? Uh, that's, well, that's, that's just purchased, you know, yeah. and, and then you got to get it in the ground, so. Yeah, so. So, yeah, it's like 25 bucks an acre. You know, here's 25 bucks an acre for your long-term no-till. Uh, a year. A year. Yeah. And before I close, this issue of soil depletion is obviously not confined to North Dakota or North America. And arguably, one could imagine it being worse in other parts of the world. Is is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, it is. I, I had a group of farmers from Kazakhstan come over about uh, 10 years ago, and they were interested in sugar beet production. And and Kazakhstan is kind of on the edge of the steppes in that area, and it's been farmed periodically for, what, 3,000 years? So, you know, they lost their topsoil about 1,000 B.C. And so uh, they asked me what kind of nitrogen rate we were using for sugar beets. And so I told them that, uh, farmers would put on anywhere from 100 to 120 pound, pounds of nitrogen, and and they would get, um, you know, at that time, 25 tons of beets. It's more like 35 now, and um, 17 17 percent protein and or, I mean sugar, which is about the same as it is today. And, and so they huddled together and they talked, and and the interpreter said they they have to put on 200 pounds of nitrogen to get that same yield and that much sugar. And I said, well, if you put on 200 pounds of nitrogen here, you'd have, you'd have beets the size of pumpkins, but the sugar content only be 11%. So, uh, but that's the difference. They have no organic matter and they have to put on what, half again as much fertilizer as we do to get the same crop. You know, you, if you have any kind of soil with no organic matter, you can put enough fertilizer on to get a crop probably, but uh, it's going to be a lot more expensive to do so and a lot less profitable. Any thoughts on so no-till systems but and cover crops coming into that 
but then the incorporation of livestock at some point, a grazing animal. Have you done work in that area? Or? Yeah, other people have, and that's a that's a great that's a great thing. Um, the one of the people I work with, um, I asked him what he was going to put in for cover crop, and he told me, and then and it, it had some legumes in there and some other things. They're kind of pricey. Usually, we just talk to people about radishes and, and, and cereal rye, but he had other things in there. And I said, well, how much is that going to cost you? And I, he said, you know, around $25. And I said, how are you going to get that back? And he said, well, you know, I, I, I buy some, I buy some steers. I, I electric fence the thing off. Uh, I let them feed on it. And, uh, I quadruple my money when I, when I take the steers out of it. And, and I thought, oh yeah. And the other thing is we're not really seeing much nutrient cycling if we're just putting cereal rye and and radishes in there. And I, and I think if you put it through the cow, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm pretty, you know, at least I think it's logical that the nutrient cycling capacity of those cover crops would be way better if they went through a cow first than, than right on the top of the soil. Dr. Franson, thank you so much for your time and sharing this information. Um, if you have any questions for me, it's fair to open myself up. I've been asking you a bunch. Otherwise, I'll say thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been great.